Hello, everybody. Welcome. My name is Melissa C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in New York. And um, so tonight, we're going to jump right into the doctor's opinion. Um, I think it's a it's a really important part of the big book. It's not a chapter, right? It's, a, it's one of the forwards. But um, it's oftentimes something that's read um, for the first, like one of the first readings a sponsor might do with a sponsee. And for myself, it's usually um, what I read with somebody before I actually, we come to an agreement to work together. Because I think it, um, it helps the person identify whether they may in fact have this thing and just um, how they feel about grabbing hold of, of what the solution is gonna be. So, all right, so let's just jump right in. And, and for tonight's purposes, um, I'm really gonna zone in on, there are some very important concepts that get brought to life in the doctor's opinion. And from it is there's a list of, and I love lists. If you know me, I'm like a girl all about a list. I love a list. Um, there really is a list of things in the doctor's opinion that make us distinct which is why I usually read it with someone before we determine whether or not we're gonna to work together. Because in order to work with someone, they have to identify as having this problem. And, and the identification means that they understand that there's something about them that's different, that's distinct. And, um, and, it, and it is discussed here in the chapter. So right away, um, the, the, the doctor's opinion opens up and it tells us that, um, you know, that there's the convincing testimony, and this is on XXV, uh, that there's convincing testimony and they might come from medical men who've experienced the sufferings of our members and have witnessed our return to health. So it's very important that the person who is um, carrying the message, who's, who's giving this convincing testimony has, had a return to health that is noticeable. Now, that might be in a physical transformation or something about them. And we often say that people who are recovered, you know, their, their eyes look different. They're, they're alive, they look alive. And, um, and that's the witnessing our return to health. You know, the next thing is the, the, the um, doctor's opinion opens up with a letter. And just as an aside, it, you know, the letter says to whom it may concern. And in my book, um, I wrote Dear Melissa next to that because I am who this letter is concerning. And that's what I usually would tell someone that I'm taking through the doctor's opinion to do, to try to read this letter as though you're the concerned party. This information is precisely for you. You're reading it not as a, you know, a hypothetical, some theory about someone else who's suffering, but to you, to you personally. So my book says, Dear Melissa. So now the, it, it talks, the next paragraph is gonna say that um, the doctor attended a patient who, though he had been a competent businessman of good earning capacity, was an alcoholic of a type I'd come to regard as hopeless. And he's talking about Bill here, that Bill was competent in business, 
with good earning capacity. So at different points in his life, he was able to make money and support himself. And yet he was hopeless just the same. And I would say, you know, in my list of things that make me distinct, this is number one, I can be both competent and hopeless, which I think for um, compulsive overeaters is, is pretty important to note because many of us, myself included, um, one of my stumbling blocks to admitting powerlessness was I kept pointing at what was still working in my life. And for me, what was still working was um, I still had a job. I never lost my job. Um, and I was always able to pay my mortgage, right? Mostly, um, and pay my bills, mostly, right? Um, and so we can look really competent for a very long time and still be hopeless. This disease, you know, it's evil. I think it's an evil force and it allows, what happens is my, um, my benchmark for competency kept getting moved, right? So I kept thinking I was competent, I was competent, but I wasn't really performing at my maximum capacity. Um, and that I was hopeless. You know, the next paragraph says that um, in the course of his third treatment, he acquired certain ideas concerning a possible means of recovery. As part of his rehabilitation, rehabilitation, he commenced to present his conceptions to other alcoholics, impressing upon them that they must do likewise with still others. So here's another thing that makes me separate and distinct. In order for me to get well and stay well, I'm going to have to work with other people who have the same problem as me. Now think about that. That's very different from another type of ailment. You know, um, if you had another problem, let's say a heart condition, the qualifications of the physician that's gonna treat you does not mean that he has to have this heart condition too. And your ability to get well from your heart condition would have nothing to do with your helping other heart patients. But this particular problem, in order for me to recover from it, I have to be helped by someone who has the same problem as me. And then I have to then go help other people with the same problem which I think oftentimes is why some people who might live wonderfully virtuous, wonderful lives, perhaps spiritual in nature, might not get well unless they're doing this particular 12-step program because we have to be helped by people who have this and we have to help others who have the same problem. It's very specific for us makes me different. And it also tells me, you know, in my first conversation that I have with people, I am going to spell out that they will have to help others, that that is part of the deal. And while they might not be in a condition to do it the very first time we're talking, they have to at least agree that if they get well, they will likewise do the same thing that I'm doing. And I always let the person know, just like I'm letting you guys know tonight, this is so I stay well too. Even this work right now, 
this was part of my own rehabilitation, right? Okay, so the next thing that makes me distinct is in the next paragraph, it says, I personally know scores of cases who were of the type with whom other methods had failed completely. So here's another qualification. I have to have exhausted every other method. Most people who come here don't come in. This is the very first thing they try. They do it, they get well, and they, they buy in 100%. Because what we have to offer, although it's wonderful, it's pretty extreme. And most normal people are not gonna go to extreme measures unless they've tried all the less extreme measures out there. So if you're sitting here saying, my gosh, I've tried everything, I've tried everything, I would say, awesome, you're in the right spot. Excellent, that's the whole point. Um, okay, now the next part. Um, you know, the letter ends, and I think this is really interesting. The letter ends with, you may rely absolutely on anything they say about themselves. So here's something else. Um, my word has to be good. That is another thing that makes me distinct. I cannot be dishonest. I have to be reliable in my words. And especially what I tell you about me. Anything I tell you about me has to come from a spot of, of humility and honesty and not necessarily self-promotion. That's what makes people reliable. And I think it's pretty incredible that he was talking you know, about opening up the hospital and allowing really gutter drunks to come in and talk about the solution and telling the people there, you can rely on anything that they say. These people are reliable. And I'd say we are reliable here because we have had experience with the disease and we know the way out. And that makes what we have to say reliable information. We're not just talking on theory, but we're talking in, in real information. Okay, so now um, on XXVI, now we're gonna start talking about the body of the alcoholic. Okay, so the physician who at our request gave us this letter then enlarges upon his views. He, he discusses them even deeper. And in this statement, he says that those who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. So now I'm finding out another way. Another thing that makes me different is my body. I have a body. I don't know why, but it's not the same as other people. My body does not react the same way as other people in my life, whether it's family members, whether it's friends, that something happens to me. And it doesn't matter, you know, um, has nothing to do with being maladjusted to life, full fright from reality. Those things might be true, but my body is also sick. It's telling me here that there's something different about my body. And they further go on to say that in their belief, any picture of the alcoholic, which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. 
right? So that's another thing that makes me different from other people is that I have this physical component. You know, and now the doctor's theory is that we have an allergy and that it kind of interests us, this theory. This is like an interesting theory. And we're also told, you know, as laymen, meaning we're not doctors, we don't have anybody's blood work results, that this opinion, you know, um, might mean little, right? If you're just like anybody out there, you would say, yeah, this is sort of an interesting opinion. I don't really think much about it. But if you're an ex-problem eater, this explanation makes a lot of sense. And for me, it's the only thing that explains why I am not able, I don't know why, but I cannot eat certain foods in normal portions. I've never been able to do it. Now, could I today? I have no interest in, in exploring that theory. I don't, I'm not willing. I am not interested in testing whether or not I still have this allergy. I believe that I do. I'm pretty sure I do. And you know what? Someday, maybe when I meet my maker, they'll say, silly you, you could have actually had the ice cream the last 10 years of your life. Maybe. But for now, I'm really happy with um, going with the theory that I've got this allergy and I don't feel like testing it anymore, right? And for me, it's the only thing that makes sense. You know, now we're told that we're gonna work out this solution on a spiritual and altruistic plane. So now we found out what the solution is gonna be. It's gonna be a spiritual solution. It's not gonna be a diet solution. And it's gonna be an altruistic one, meaning another thing that makes me distinct is that I have to constantly be thinking of others. That is part of what it means to be altruistic. I have to put other people's needs ahead of my own. That's an important part of what makes me different from other people, right? Think about it. If you are a heart patient, in order to get well, you wouldn't have to put other heart patients' needs above your own. But those of us with this problem, we, we've got to be willing to have a lot of self-sacrifice, to sacrifice our time in an effort to help other people with this problem. And then it talks here, which I think is a very important concept, um, that we favor hospitalization for the alcoholic who's very jittery or befogged. And I want to talk a little bit about what it means when we say hospitalization, because by no means am I telling everybody here that they have to check in to a hospital, right? I'm not telling anybody here that they have to get into an outpatient or an inpatient facility or anything like that. What I can tell you is as a, um, as a compulsive overeater, when I worked the steps, I needed very tight parameters, boundaries, guidelines. I needed distractions kept at a minimum, almost as if I were in a treatment program, as if I were in a hospital. And I think that's something that a sponsor can help a sponsee establish. So what would that look like if you were in this hospitalization, right, of our own making, a hospital of our own making? 
Well, it would mean that any of my extra time outside of my job, my hygiene, my family, my religious practices would be this treatment, getting well. So if you're in the hospitalization period, it's not the time to take up a new hobby, right? We make a joke that this is a knitting club, right? Someone said a crochet club. If you were in the hospitalization and you heard, oh, knitting, that sounds interesting. I think I'll try that. Maybe not while you're in the hospitalization period. You know, it's, it's what I usually tell people as well is, unless you have to, for maybe your job or for some other important reason, I wouldn't eat out in a restaurant. It's sort of like thinking about a, an alcoholic, newly sober, going to hang out in a bar. You just don't belong there. You're not necessarily well. And it's generally not a time that you would go away on vacation, you know, or, or, um, or even necessarily start looking for a new job. Like your first focus, if you're here looking to get well, the understanding is that what you have is fatal and it's killing you and it requires immediate attention. Now, this hospitalization, it's a period of time. It's not a forever. Of course, we rejoin the land of the living, right? But for now, while working the steps, we keep outside distractions outside. Um, and, um, you know, and that's something that makes me distinct too, is that I needed tight parameters around my food, around my life. And turns out for me, some of those tight parameters, I just kept right on living with because they, they feel right for me. They just, um, they keep me focused on what my real purpose is, which is not eating. It's not my purpose anymore. So next now, um, I'm gonna talk about on XXVII. We're gonna skip down and we're gonna find that um, with our ultra modern standards, our scientific approach to everything, we are perhaps not well equipped to apply the powers of good that lie outside our synthetic knowledge. So, you know, here I'm being told that I, I'm gonna need another moral code, right? I'm gonna need another way of thinking, another way of behaving, and it's different from the one that I've been living with. And we actually find out through this program that the particular code that becomes our moral code is love and tolerance. That becomes the code that we live by. And, um, and yet this other paragraph, the paragraph further tells me, I might know this, but I can't apply it with my own intellect. Like I might be given this code and yet my ability to apply the code to my life, I can't do. And, you know, so I would say like, I knew what honesty was when I came here and I knew what unselfishness was. And yet I struggled on my own power. I struggled to live within the boundaries of my own morals. 
I struggled to live that way. And that made me distinct too. What I found, what we find is that we need a higher power to help us live in agreement with our morals, with even what we believe in. We need God's help to help us live that way. Um, you know, and uh, you know, the addict knows right from wrong. We come in here, we know what right and wrong are. Little children know right from wrong at a pretty early age, but the addict struggles to abide by right and wrong because they are under control of a substance, right? We are living in bondage to our selfishness and our need to get more of what we want, of our self. Lack of knowledge is not our dilemma. It's lack of power. That's the dilemma here, that we lack power. Not that we don't know right from wrong, not that we don't know what we're supposed to eat, what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to live, but we need help to do those things. Okay, the bottom of the page now, the unselfishness of these men. So now um, the doctor is talking about the people that he's noticed that are living this way, these altruistic men. And what he noticed is that these people are unselfish. There's an entire absence of a profit motive. They've got community spirit and that it's inspiring. He finds it inspirational to see these people. And what he finds exciting and inspirational is that they believe in themselves. These people who were beaten down by a substance now believe in themselves and even more in the power, and that's a capital P. So we know that that's of a spiritual component. That's, a, that's God, which pulls chronic alcoholics back from the gates of death. So unselfishness, entire absence of a profit motive, community spirit. These are the characteristics of fellows who have recovered. Right? This is if you're looking for someone, what do you want? You want someone who's got a community spirit, who's active and involved in this fellowship, who's not interested in you paying them, right? This is free. We cannot get paid. That's another thing that makes me distinct. I cannot be paid or pay for this treatment plan. This is free. And um, you know, why are we working so hard to help others? Why? Because we believe in ourselves, right? But even more in the power that has saved our lives. And, you know, my own experience is that I, I was pulled back from the gates of death. I absolutely was. I, you know, I've shared before, my blood pressure was dangerously high. I was told by my doctor that I probably wasn't gonna make it out of my 40s. Um, and I knew that, and I still couldn't stop eating, right? And I would lay in bed at night. I would feel my heart pounding in my ears, and I couldn't sleep. I was pretty sure that my kids might wake up one morning and find me dead, like in my bed. That's what I feared. 
and I couldn't do anything about it, right? And so why do I believe in this? Because I don't live that way anymore, right? Because I have absolutely been pulled back from the gates of death. And I believe in a God that rescued me, that pulled me back from that sure death. And now it's my heart's delight. It's my, it's my passion. It's my purpose. Because I believe in it, right? I 100% believe in it. And um, so that's something that also makes us distinct, right? We believe in it because we've gotten well from it. Okay, so now, you know, at the on XXVIII, it's again gonna mention hospitalization. And so, um, you know, I think what's important too about a hospital is that when people go to the hospital, they're not stuck in a room never to be visited, right? They're not told, go to a cave. You put someone in a bed. People wait on them. People bring them care, right? Oftentimes you're in the hospital, you know, a clergy shows up. Someone comes and prays with you. People come and visit you. They send you maybe flowers, right? They give you a meal card. So you don't have to prepare your food. You tick it off and you eat what's brought to you. And I think that's an important thing. We don't, we don't shoot the wounded here. We help people, that's our job. And you know, if someone's in the hospital and they're not recovering quickly, we still don't abandon them. We still don't leave them. We're supposed to help people who are sick and suffering, right? Okay, now it's gonna talk about the phenomenon of craving. And, um, this is on, again, XXVIII, that a chronic alcoholic, that alcohol and a chronic alcoholic is a manifestation of an allergy and that this phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. And once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. So the phenomenon of craving is something else that makes me distinct. We're told it's limited to this class. It doesn't occur in the average temperate eaters. Right? And um, average temperate eaters, if you think about a temperate climate, so I, you know, many of us live in a temperate climate, except right now it's super hot, right? So sometimes it gets really hot, sometimes it gets really cold. Same thing with average temperate eaters. Sometimes they overeat, right? Sometimes they get so busy they might not eat, right? Um, they're, but overall, they're temperate. They're somewhere in, in between. And so, you know, I could um, see my friends and family on Thanksgiving and they're overeating. Everybody, it's pretty universal. Most people in America on Thanksgiving eat so much, they unbutton their pants, they sit back to the table, they go, oh, I'm so full, right? 
except Friday morning, they're not in the refrigerator eating the leftovers, right? Before anybody wakes up. They're the average temperate eater. Um, but not so for me. You know, what happens is average temperate eaters, as they eat, the desire for more gets decreased. With every bite they take, they want less. And the exact opposite happens for me. When I eat certain foods or I eat outside of my committed food plan, I want more. I desire more. Something happens inside me and it has nothing to do with fullness. It has nothing to do, which for me is why um, intuitive eating would not work for me because I can't, my body does not seem to send my brain the right signals about fullness. I'd say for me, the data has been, it's corrupt data. It's not clean data. So I can't judge when I'm hungry necessarily or when I'm full. And that's my experience. And what happened for me is every time I overate, I wanted to overeat more. And this does not happen in normal people. Normal people eat and with every bite, they want less, right? And, you know, and someone explained to, to me once that it's like, if you're thirsty, right? I go outside, it's really hot. I'm super thirsty. I pour myself a nice glass of ice water. I don't need to call upon my willpower. I don't need 12 steps to keep me from downing three more glasses of ice water. I get my thirst quenched and I'm done. And that's the experience of temperate eaters, right? They get their fill and they're done. So what makes me, you know, distinct is that I don't have that experience with food, that that part of me seems to have been broken. Um, all right, so now uh, in the middle of the, of the page, frothy uh, emotional appeal. Okay, now I'm gonna find out what doesn't work. Again, this makes me distinct. Frothy, frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. It doesn't work. And that for someone like me, the message that can interest me and hold me must have depth and weight. In nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they're to recreate their lives. There's a lot in that paragraph about what makes me distinct. First of all, um, you can't appeal to me from frothy emotion. So when my doctor said to me, you're not gonna make it out of your forties, normal people would say, holy smokes doc, tell me what to do and I'm on it. I'm there, I'm game, I'm listening. And that didn't work for me. Actually, what happened for me was on the way home, I hit two fast food places because he scared me. And I figured, let me get my last bits in before I do something about it Monday, right? Frothy emotional appeal didn't work for me. My other experience, um, which I think is a really good way to demonstrate it is 
when my children were little, my mother-in-law came here one time and um, she sat me down and she appealed to me from frothy emotion. And my mother-in-law actually started to cry and she was telling me how when she was a little girl, her mother died. And it was a horrible way to grow up as a small child without her mother. That every birthday and every holiday and every Christmas, there was a, a deep longing and a sadness in her. And um, she said she wouldn't wish that on her worst enemy. And then she said, you know, sadly that um, she saw that same experience happen to my husband, her son, my mother-in-law lost her husband. My, my husband lost his dad. My husband was seven or eight years old when his dad died. So my mother-in-law was a woman in her early thirties and she saw the same thing happen to her sons. And she said it was terrible. It was a horrible way to, you know, for them. And she just always tried to make things happy for them, but it was really sad. And then she said, and Melissa, I'm looking at you and you're going to do the same thing to my grandchildren. And holy smokes, like, you know, she was crying. That's brought the emotional appeal. And it didn't work, right? It didn't work. So, we can't appeal to people from frothy emotions, which I think is important for us too, as we're out there carrying the message. It is not an effective message for me to sit someone down and say to them, look at yourself, you're killing yourself. You're killing yourself. You're gonna, you're gonna die. You're ruining your children's lives. That doesn't work. What works is that I'll tell them how I was killing myself that I was going to die from this thing and that I'm not anymore. And here's the other thing that makes me separate and distinct is that I have to have ideals and they have to be grounded in a power greater than myself. These ideals have to be grounded in God. So we're told right away in the doctor's opinion that we're going to have to have new ideals that are not grounded in ourselves, but in a power greater than ourselves. And we're also told, guess what? You're going to have to recreate your life. You're going to have to actually have a new life. So doctor's opinion is an important thing to spell out with people because it makes it clear that this is not a diet, that this is not a temporary fix where I'm going to wish you well, and you're never going to help anybody and you're not gonna have to make a brand new life, you're gonna be able to live your same old life in a thin body, doing what you, you know, whatever you want. But we're actually told right here, you're gonna to have to make a new life, recreate your life. You're not gonna fit this program into the leftover pieces of your structured life. You're actually gonna recreate a life that's gonna be built around a power greater than yourself and around helping other people. It's a big part of the doctor's opinion. Okay, so now the bottom of the page. Why do we eat? Well, because we like the effect. We get something off of it. It says here that men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. And that sensation is so elusive that while they admit it's injurious, they cannot, after a time, differentiate the true from the false. 
To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks. Drinks which they see others taking with impunity. And after they've succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. And that this is repeated over and over. And unless the person can experience an entire psychic change, there is very little hope of his recovery. Um, so it's clear here, change, you're going to have to change or there's little hope, little hope and an entire psychic change. So the phenomenon, right? This thing that I have, I get a hit, I get an effect produced by food, something happens to me. And, um, and it's, I don't eat, I did not eat because I was a foodie. I did not eat because food tastes really good and I like the texture of it, right? And it's not even for the presentation. I've eaten with foodies. They love little tiny pretty plates. They take one little tiny bite. They say, this is delicious, I love it. Um, but not so for me, I get a hit. I get a buzz off of the food. And for me, I used to actually begin to feel that buzz even before I began to eat it. Sometimes I would start feeling it when I was planning the binge. I was almost getting a hit before anything was in my mouth. You know, I remember as a little girl, the bus ride home from school, knowing that there was something specific in the cabinet and I could almost feel this excitement brewing inside me. I was already getting a little bit intoxicated before I took a single bite. Um, you know, the sensation that I get, this effect that I get, it escapes me. It eludes me. It's short. It's not even long lasting. And even though it's hurting me, I can't tell what's true and I can't tell what's not true because it seems to be normal for me to eat the way that I was eating. It's, it started feeling normal. And when you're living that way, that's your normal, right? Normal is like the worst, um, like when you say, well, what's normal? It depends on who you're with right? It's your company. Like you would say, well, this is normal behavior. Yeah. If you're hanging out with other compulsive overeaters, right? It's normal. If you're hanging out with other people who are working out in the gym 24 seven a day, working out in the gym 24 seven a day seems normal too. So, you know, I, I can't tell what's true and what's not true. And when I didn't eat, I was restless I was irritable and I was discontented. And what that means to me is I felt internally itchy. I felt itchy on the inside. 
Like I couldn't settle myself down. And what would happen next really explains for me the addiction cycle. And I would say it's more of a spiral than a cycle, right? I get uncomfortable and I succumb, which means I give in to the desire. My discomfort builds up to such a state that I'm too weak to fight it. And, you know, here's the thing. Other people, by the way, get uncomfortable and other people get ease and comfort from food too. That's why there's happy hours, right? That's why um, lots of people come home. Normal people, by the way, many of them come home and have a drink. Many people come home and have a little snack. They have something that sort of gives them a little buzz, makes them feel a little good. The difference is, is that they don't suffer the punishing effects that I have of the allergy, the after effects, my inability to do it in a normal way. So they eat and they may even overeat, but they can certainly stop way before I would stop. And for me, once I eat, then I begin craving, which means I can't stop. And it may take me a very long time to emerge remorseful. You know, I, what happens for me is that my binges got longer in duration. They required more food. They took on more serious proportions. The time I emerged remorseful came fewer and farther in between. And I would say, you know, normal people, right? They, they, they eat something and they go, oh, that hit the spot. I have a spot that can't get hit. That's what makes me distinct is that I don't get, ah, that was good. I never get that. And I have never, ever binged and said, that was great. I always emerge remorseful, guaranteed. When I stop, I am going to feel horrible about myself. I never stopped on my own power and said, that was great. That was perfect. Well, here we go now. There's no hope for me in that scenario. I'm like stuck in this spiral. Every time I emerge remorseful, I give in again, I eat again, my binges get worse, they last longer until at the end, my life felt like a black dot in the middle of a spiral not a cycle, but a spiral. And here's the best part. An XXIX, on the other hand, thank God for the other hand. And strange as this may seem to those who do not understand, once a psychic change has occurred, remember that's what we're after here, a psychic change. The very same person who seemed doomed, who had so many problems, he despaired of ever solving them suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol. So what I would say is when you've had that psychic change, that spiral gets unraveled, just gets unraveled, God unravels it. And I'm not stuck in a spiral anymore. I don't desire getting back in there. I don't test it. I'm not interested in testing the theory. You know, and what I'd say is, it's why is the desire easily 
controlled. It's not because I got stronger than the desire. That's not what happens here. We don't get more willpower. What happens is, is that my willpower becomes inconsequential for this particular problem because the desire that used to feel like a tiger that I needed the cage of willpower becomes a kitten. That's what happens to the psych in the psychic change. The desire gets diminished. So when I say that I'm with my family and they're eating all my old binge foods, which were ice cream and cake and cookies, I don't care. I'm not calling upon willpower. I'm not like holding on for dear life. I'm not like, it doesn't look interesting to me anymore. And that is 100% the result of God coming into my heart and changing me. That's the only thing that can describe it. And so the, you know, what makes me distinct is that in order for me to know, which is why we go through the doctor's opinion with someone, that I in fact am going to require this problem is I have to make my own diagnosis. And that further gets discussed at the end of the chapter. That the man, you know, towards the end of the chapter, he, um, he hid in a barn deserted, a deserted bar barn determined to die. He made his own diagnosis. He said it was hopeless. Well, guess what? Making your own diagnosis is something else that makes you distinct. You know, if I had a heart condition, I don't need my diagnosis in order to get well. But for this condition, I have to make my own diagnosis. I have to, I have to agree internally that I've got this thing. And the last thing that I would say is important is that in order for me to get well, I must have an experience with the miraculous. That's what makes me distinct, that this program is a program where we are summoning up a miracle, where we are praying. We're told at the end, if you're going to stay, you're going to pray, right? You might come to scoff, which is where I usually leave it with someone when I go through the doctor's opinion with them. I say, look, at this point, you can go off and scoff, which is awesome. But if you're going to stay, we're going to pray. And um, with that, I'll pass.